Science is a production of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. It is made possible by grant funding from the Academy of Teaching Scholars at the University of Oklahoma. The views expressed in this podcast are based on the participants' research, but at times may represent their expert opinion only. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest today on the podcast is Dr. Lisa Landrum. Dr. Landrum is a GYN oncologist and associate professor in the Department of OBGYN and is our residency program director. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Landrum. Thanks for having me. Okay, Dr. Landrum, today I'd like to talk about endometrial hyperplasia on the podcast. While to some, the diagnosis and management of endometrial hyperplasia may seem straightforward, I would argue that there are lots of nuances in both the diagnosis and the treatment of this condition. It certainly isn't one-size-fits-all, in my opinion. I would definitely agree, Dr. Smith. Many experts don't even agree on how to accurately make a pathologic diagnosis on endometrial hyperplasia. And we certainly have many more management options as well as patient challenges than we used to when treating the disease. Traditionally, the standard of treatment was hysterectomy, but times are changing as the obesity epidemic and aging population are both major factors in medical decision-making. Furthermore, younger women are being affected and fertility sparing options must be considered. Additionally, many patients will have medical contraindications to surgery owing either to severe systemic disease and or severe morbid obesity with BMIs in the 50 to 80 range no longer rare. Well, Lisa, it looks like we have our work cut out for us today. Most of our resident listeners will be familiar with uh, patients having large BMIs or high BMIs and severe systemic disease. We hear about that a lot. So let's start with making the diagnosis. Can you tell me about the different types of endometrial hyperplasia and what should be considered about each of them? Sure. Endometrial hyperplasia has been classified historically in four ways. Simple hyperplasia without atypia, simple hyperplasia with atypia, complex hyperplasia without atypia, and complex hyperplasia with atypia. The risk of progression gradually increases along that continuum, beginning at approximately 1% for patients with simple hyperplasia, 3% for patients with complex hyperplasia and increasing up to 29% for patients with complex hyperplasia with atypia. However, one of the challenges associated with endometrial hyperplasia is that pathology has difficulty consistently distinguishing complex hyperplasia with atypia from grade 1 endometrial cancer, and this has been very well documented by our pathology colleagues. Fortunately, with these precursor conditions, there are also a number of well-identified risk factors that can help us predict and even prevent endometrial cancer in these patients. One of uh, these risk factors is obesity. A recent prospective study reported that nearly 70% of women with early-stage endometrial cancer were obese. The relative risk for disease increases with BMI with the relative risk of death for patients with a BMI greater than 40 increased to 6.25. Another risk factor is continuous estrogen stimulation. Now this can come in a number of different forms. This can be endogenous due to factors such as anovulation, polycystic ovarian syndrome, obesity, or estrogen-producing tumors. 
can also be ex exogenous through uh, tamoxifen or oral estrogens uh, that are prescribed by physicians that aren't um, offset with a progestin additive. Another important risk group that we forget about are those patients with familial predispositions to cancer, such as Lynch syndrome. Physicians must remember to take careful physical, to take careful family histories to identify family members with endometrial, colorectal, stomach, ovary, and pancreatic cancer. Patients with Lynch syndrome that's been identified have a lifetime risk of endometrial cancer of 40%. So it's important to know the exact diagnosis for your patients in order to treat them appropriately. The type of endometrial hyperplasia uh, among the four that we talked about, as well as their goals, including fertility and their comorbid conditions, will guide your future management. Okay. Well, let's start by making an accurate diagnosis. How do we ensure that the diagnosis we get is correct? So the most common presenting symptom for uh, a woman with endometrial hyperplasia is abnormal uterine bleeding. Uh, and, and while we commonly associate this with postmenopausal women, this can also be at, at any age. Other findings that merit consideration for hyperplasia include cytology findings on a pap test of atypical glandular cells or an incidental finding of a thickened endometrial stripe on transvaginal ultrasound. In each of these clinical scenarios, an endometrial biopsy is indicated. When feasible, it's always preferable to do an initial endometrial biopsy in the office using a pipelle aspiration catheter. This reduces cost, cost, risk, and inconvenience to the patient. The detection rates would indicate that using this device is 99.6% for cancer and 98% for hyperplasia. So this is actually a quite a good tool uh, for detection. If the results of the biopsy are not satisfactory, or in some cases patients will not be able to tolerate the exam, a transvaginal ultrasound is a reasonable next step. For postmenopausal women, an endometrial thickness of 4 millimeters or less has a negative predictive value of 100%. In the event the endometrial stripe is greater than 4%, I'm sorry, four millimeters, or if the in-office biopsy is negative but symptoms still persist, D and C with hysteroscopy is recommended. Okay, so once we have a diagnosis, Lisa, how do we decide uh, to best manage our patient? That, and that's a great question, Dr. Smith. Simple hyperplasia, both with and without atypia, and complex hyperplasia without atypia, there's relatively little risk of prog progression to cancer. Um, and so this can be managed with progestins is certainly very reasonable or definitively with hysterectomy. For our patients with complex hyperplasia with, with atypia, the risk of a concomitant grade one endometrial cancer is approximately 40%. So given this, for patients that are either postmenopausal and are appropriate surgical candidates, hysterectomy is generally recommended. For patients that desire fertility preservation or for those that are poor surgical candidates, treatment with progestins is indicated. Now you do have a number of tools for progestins that you can use. This would include oral medroxyprogesterone acetate uh, or Provera, magestrol acetate or Megase, uh, micronized progesterone vaginal cream, depo 
medroxyprogesterone and the levonorgestrel releasing intrauterine system. Great. Okay. If I'm managing my patient with surgery, um, either because there's uh, complex hyperplasia with atypia or they uh, are a good surgical candidate and don't want to use medical therapy, um, what, are, what are the particulars that I need to be aware of? So in general, the goal is the removal of the cervix and uterus. Supracervical hysterectomy is not acceptable for patients with atypical endometrial hyperplasia. And really, morselation of any type is discouraged given the risk of underlying malignancy. Regarding the tubes and ovaries, <coughs> removal is not required, especially in premenopausal women. In postmenopausal women, there's no clear consensus on ophorectomy, but the risk of metastasis to the ovaries is quite low, uh, less than 5%. So, in patients without a confirmed diagnosis of malignancy, we know that there's an overall increased morbidity and mortality in removal of the ovaries. Okay, that seems pretty straightforward. Now, uh, let's talk about medical management. We have lots of options, you said. Um, so how do we decide what medications, what routes? You know, is it patient-dependent? Give us some insight on that. So again, medical management and the choice of treatment is largely driven by the goals of the patient. If the patient's being medically managed because she's a poor surgical candidate, I generally prefer to place the Mirena IUD. Um, the reasons for this are that you don't have to worry about patients taking a daily uh, progestin medication. You place the IUD, it stays in place for five years and gets a continuous um, supply of progestins. Patients like this, we generally would resample in six months uh, just to ensure that we're not uh, ignoring a, a grade one cancer. Okay, so I choose to treat my patient medically and then I rebiopsy in six months. And if that's normal, I just keep rebiopsying forever. I mean, what if my patient wants to have kids? How long does she have to wait? What if her biopsy doesn't improve? These are the things that keep me awake at night, Dr. Landrum. And, and they keep me awake as well. But don't fret. We can cover each of these situations. Um, let's start with patients that desire fertility preservation. I generally prefer to use a daily uh, dose of oral magistral acetate. Uh, at a dose of 160 milligrams per day. We do this for a three-month time frame and then resample the patient. During this three months that we're treating, I generally go ahead and have the patient referred to our uh, REI clinic so that once she has cleared the hyperplasia, the infertility specialist can begin to rapidly move, and move forward with uh, the next steps. If at the end of that three-month time frame she's not cleared the hyperplasia, I would repeat another, repeat another three months of progestin and then rebiopsy. Uh, to be honest, at, at the end of six months of treatment, I would probably do a DNC um, for my biopsy. The, while the Mirena IUD is effective in these patients as well, from a cost standpoint, I generally minimize the use in these patients. Um, because I'm trying to rapidly clear the hyperplasia and get them uh, moving forward with their fertility goals. Personally, I think it makes less sense to use a product that's designed for five years of use and more sense to use oral progestins in these patients. If after six months of therapy, the in-office in biopsy still shows atypical endometrial hyperplasia, as I mentioned, I generally uh, use a DNC, 
uh, not only to make sure I have uh, an adequate sample, but more importantly, to try to mechanically clear the endometrium. This is then followed by three months of additional progestins. As long as the patient is compliant with follow-up and the biopsies are not indicating any progression, it's really reasonable to continue to try to clear the, hyper, the uh, hyperplasia with conservative therapy. Certainly, if along the way there's a progression to cancer, definitive surgical management would be recommended. Great. Okay, so to summarize, I'm going to do my office biopsy with the pipel. If I get any hyperplasia, including complex atypical, but no cancer, and my patient's not a surgical candidate or is, you know, something that I'm not so, don't need to take them to surgery, I'm going to choose my progesterone therapy, resample them. If they don't clear, with my then office resampling doesn't say, hey, we're better, DNC, okay? And then continue treatment. So when, if ever, is it appropriate for my patient or any of these women to stop their progesterone therapy? So generally speaking, I plan to continue their progestin therapy indefinitely unless the patient's able to go under his, undergo hysterectomy at some point. In most cases, uh, for most of these patients, the underlying source for exogen excess is obesity, which has been my experience is unlikely to improve. Okay, that's helpful to know. Now, do these women have risks for any other diseases or cancers that we should be aware of? So for the women, for the population of women that I mentioned that carry the Lynch syndrome, the germ muta- germline mutation associated with Lynch syndrome, their risk is increased both for, for colorectal and ovarian cancer in addition to endometrial cancer. Certainly, in this population of patients, removal of the ovaries is indicated at the time of hysterectomy. In addition, colonoscopy should be initiated every other year at age 20 and annually beginning at age 35. So keep in mind, this, while this does represent a very small population of, of women, for these women, their risk of additional malignancy is substantial. And so the current NCCN guidelines would recommend genetic testing for Lynch syndrome should be completed in any patient with a personal history of endometrial or colorectal cancer before age 50. For the majority of women that have hyperplasia or endometrial cancer, their condition is not caused by a germline mutation, but rather related to lifestyle choices that have resulted in obesity. Because of this, it's very common to see comorbid conditions such as hypertension, diabetes, coronary artery disease, sleep apnea, and chronic pulmonary disease in these patients. That's great information. Thanks for coming today and sharing with us, Dr. Landrum. I hope our listeners have learned a lot of new stuff. Um, I know I have. Is there anything else that we should know about? In, you know, in summary, while we've outlined the risk factors uh, and evaluation and management of endometrial hyperplasia, we've not reviewed practical strategies for prevention. It's critical um, that primary care physicians and OBGYNs recognize that our obese and ovulatory patients that are being evaluated both for infertility and abnormal uterine bleeding are patients that are that at risk. And we should begin the discussion early and, and be um, thoughtful about preventive strategies. Multiple studies have demonstrated that women who use combination estrogen and progesterone oral contraceptives decrease their risk of endometrial cancer by 50%. In addition, the Mirena IUD is also an attractive candidate for preventing endometrial hyperplasia. 
In addition, we should never minimize the importance of physical activity and diet in maintaining a healthy body mass index. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Dr. Landrum. That's all we have for you guys today on the podcast. If you would like a copy of the transcript from today's podcast or if you have comments or questions, please email me at katie-smith at ouhsc.edu. That's k-a-t-i-e-s-m-i-t-h at ouhsc.edu. Stay tuned for further podcasts from the Department of OBGYN here at the University of Oklahoma.